Uh, so let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Ecclesiastes 3, or it should be on the uh, screen behind me. So I'm going to be reading from Ecclesiastes 3, verse 9, all the way through to chapter 4, verse 3. What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. The teacher of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever it has already, so whatever is has already been and what will be has been before and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place, all come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward, and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead, who ha had already died, are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. I'd like to remind you of a film. It was nearly 20 years old, back in 1999. There was a film called The Truman Show that came out. Jim Carrey was Truman Burbank. It's a fascinating film that uh, explored the reality of reality TV before it was popular. So imagine a globe, half a globe, that is in fact a TV set. Everything appears real. A child is born into this world. He grows from a child into a boy, into a teenager and into adulthood. Everything appears real. He has a real front drive. He has perfectly mown grass because it's America. He has a nice neighbour who is attractive and who is well known to him. He has a job that he likes. He has a mirror. In, when he shaves, there's a camera the other side. Everything, everything appears real. It's real relationships, but they're contrived. There's a real home, but it's part of a big set. And there is a moment 
on a weekend when he decides to go sailing. And so he gets into his real boat on the real water and he goes off into the sunset. And he goes on and on with the uh, real air going through his real hair. The uh, sun is beating down upon him. It's an idyllic scene. The wind is truly in the sail of the boat. And then there's a thud as the front of his boat hits the end of the world. And then he starts tapping around and he finds a door. And he opens the door and puts his right foot through the door. And then he realizes that everything that is real is fake. It's all contrived. It's all a set. It's all an exploration into the reality of human nature. And he realizes that there is life beyond, beyond the set. There's life beyond the bubble. There's life beyond the globe. There's more than life, to quote the Bible, outside of the sun. We've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. The author, his name is Koaleth. It means teacher or philosopher. And he is exploring reality. He's exploring the meaning of life. And he's pursued in the first three chapters different ways by which he can contrive his own meaning. Because he thinks, well, is there more to life than what's under the sun? He is a Christian man, and so he knows that there is life beyond the sun, but he says, what would it be like if there wasn't? And so he pursues earthly wisdom, he pursues pleasure, he pursues lots of different things, but by the time we get to chapter 3 and into 4, the tone of the book changes from a personal pursuit right to the very end of different things to provide meaning, and he begins... Well, he begins to make observations of the world in which he lives. It's there in the chapter 3 and 4, these famous verses. If you've got a Bible from verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3, we didn't read them, but they're poetic and they summarise two problems that he observes in the world in which he lives. It's not about personal uh, endeavours, but these two problems. One is, I see no progress in the world. There is a time for this and a time for that. There's a time to kill, there's a time to heal. There's a, a time to seek, there's a time to lose. There's a time for war, there's a time for peace. But I see no progress. It looks to me as if time is just a cycle that repeats. It's rhythmical. But then there's another thing I've noticed in life under the sun. There's no justice. No progress... I've got a problem with history and no justice. Why does the world function the way it does? The world is not binary. There's not one pound in and one pound back. There's not you live a good life and God will secure a good future for you. That's not how it works. And so he's looking at the world and says, well, I see these two problems in the way of the world. First of all, no progress. Let's think about that. So this first uh, poetic part of chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, that we did not read is, is very, very well known. But by the time we get to verse 9, there's a repeated sentence that's there at the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 3, that wrestles with this search for meaning. What does the work gain from all the toil, from all the work? In other words, what's the point? What's it all about? What is life this word gain that's there in that sentence, verse 9, it's, 
It's a, a word that means profits. It's a financial word. It's a trading word. What's the profit? What's the progress? What's the point? What's left over? What's solid when everything has been accounted for? I mean, you look at time, says the philosopher, asking us a question. Is it not just a circle of life? Do big wheels not keep on turning? Is it not just a turning of the page of a diary? Month by month, year by year, century upon century, it just goes round and round. People are born, but people die. Are we getting anywhere? It looks like there's no progress at all. But then he says, look, the second thing I've noticed, verse 17, is that there's no justice. No progress in history. All philosophers wrestle with that. But now there's something that becomes more personal to you and me. There's no justice. Verse 17. I looked in the place of judgment and wickedness was there. I looked where the people who really run things are and I saw wickedness instead of justice. Down to verse 1 of chapter 4. I looked at the tears of the oppressed and I saw that they had no comfort. In other words, I've looked at history and it just appears to be a repeated cycle. There's no progress. We're struggling with the same issues. The human heart hasn't changed. But then also I look at life and there's no justice. It looks to me as if life is without hope, if life under the sun is all there is. It looks like it's just a throw of the dice and you see what hand you're dealt. So imagine two friends, a man and a woman. The man has a routine appointment at the doctor's. He needs some blood work done. So off he goes because he can't throw this cold, which is a real cold. It's not just man flu. He's genuinely ill, but he can't shake it. So he goes to get some blood work done. And whilst he's there, the doctor says, you need to come back. He gets a phone call in the afternoon. You need to come back. You need to come back tomorrow. Immediately, he thinks this is urgent. I can't get hold of a doctor normally for three weeks. And so he comes and the doctor says, well, it's a really good job you came in for that routine blood work about your flu. You have got the flu, but it's revealed something more. You've got cancer. But the good news is because we've caught it early, we can treat it. And here's a procedure that we're going to go through over the next few months. Just by chance, so to speak, the man went in for some blood work for a flu. Cancer is found. A remedy is quite certain it will work. And it's a wonderful story, but then there's a lady. And the lady's friend is concerned because she's noticed that on her back when she sunbathes that there's a mole, and it looks like it's growing. But the lady doesn't want to go to the doctors and get it seen to. And so over time, the mole keeps on growing, and finally she gets round to it with her friend's loving, persistent nagging. You've got to go, it's growing, you've got to go. And she goes to the doctors, and the doctor says, well... I'm so sorry, but you've got skin cancer. If only you'd come earlier, there's something that we could have done about it. You've only got months to live. Two imaginary stories, two friends. Both go to the doctors at different times. One by chance, so to speak, found out that it's not just flu, it's cancer. But one goes too late, and cancer is something that can't be avoided. That's the kind of thing that the author of Ecclesiastes is wrestling with. This world is no progress to it and there's no justice. I see unjust suffering. There's no patterns. There's no logical kind of nature to the world. And so let me ask you a personal question so that we don't just stay with the philosopher, but let's get down to a personal level. 
Friends, how do you deal with suffering? It's one of the things that this comes up with, through chapter 3 and into chapter 4. How do you understand the world in which God has placed us? How do you understand suffering in the world under the sun, if that's all there is? If God does not exist, let's explore that for a moment. Perhaps you believe in Eastern philosophy. Eastern philosophy, when it comes to suffering, they say, well, the physical world is just an illusion, and therefore suffering is an illusion. The way to deal with suffering is just to ignore it. It's not real. That's one way. The other way that you can look at it is a kind of a stoic, stiff upper lip reality to suffering. Suffering is real, says someone, but I can't see any point to it. The only thing that's left to do, like Winston Churchill, is to endure it. Keep a stiff upper lip, my friend, and endure it. There's no hope. This life is all there is. It's real, not like Eastern philosophy that says it doesn't exist, but just endure it. It's the only way. Press on, push through. Perhaps third option, if there's no God and this is all there is. Perhaps you have a romantic understanding of the world and that comes down to suffering. And so you can say with those two friends that go to the doctors, perhaps the first person, perhaps they lived a really good life. And because they lived a good life, God will give them a great life. And that means that the cancer was found and there's a cure. But the second person who delayed, the lady, perhaps she lived a bad life. And a bad life gets a bad hand dealt from the world, from nature. It must be perhaps because she's done something wrong. Friends, if there is no God, those are your only options. There are a few others, but those are the main options that you've got. How do you deal with suffering in our world? As Christians, we can slip into one of those options if we're not very careful. But if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian at this point, you are confined to those points of enduring suffering, of looking at it and wondering what's the point. If life is under the sun as all there is, then that's all you've got. And then what does the teacher say, having posed this question? I look for justice and I just see injustice. I look for progress and I just see history repeating itself. Having put his cards on the table, where's the hope? Where's the reality as the boat hits into the set and uh, Truman steps out and sees reality as it really is? So too, the philosopher wants to hold us by the hand and in these verses there are clues to ultimate reality. Let's look at uh, what he teaches us about God. He says two things. In the place of injustice, well, actually, well, actually God is an all-powerful judge. God is an all-powerful judge. He tells us two things about God, to understand suffering and understand injustice in our world. First of all, God is an all-powerful judge. Verse 15 of chapter 3. Whatever is has already been, and what will be, has been before, and God will call all the past to account. Verse 17. God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. Understand the philosopher's trying to get us on the mat, trying to say, look, if there's no God, you've got to hold to your intellectual conclusions right to the very end. Be consistent. But then here in these two sentences, actually there's hope and there's a reality check. He's saying in these verses, there is a God, there is a creator. And because of who God is, he has the right to mete out justice. He has the ability 
to discern what is just and right because of who he is. And not only does he have the right and the ability, he has the power to execute rightly the justice that we so often long for. But then the problem comes, why is he not doing it now? when we see the injustice in the world. If you're saying that there is a just God, why is justice not happening right now in my life? Why are bad things happening to me? Why did I get mugged? Why did someone break into my house? Why did my child have this happen to them? All these huge questions of loss, all these huge questions of suffering. Why is my elderly relative allowed to be abused in the care home? That's not right. She deserves better. Why was my pension stolen by someone whose face I'll never see? That's not right. I work so hard. It's injustice everywhere. If God is just, why do we not see it now? Friends, it's about timing. I was thinking this week about Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, there is a fascinating story in the Gospels. Jesus is walking the earth. And he meets someone who is bound by an evil spirit. He's called the Gadarene demoniac. He's bound by evil spirits that is ruining his life. The man is all, he's probably naked. He's cutting himself. He's in isolation. He has never felt the warmth of someone's smile or the touch of someone's skin. His life's being ruined. And Jesus meets the man and he's going to liberate him. He's going to change his life. He's going to bring light into darkness. He's going to know safety in personal relationships. He's going to know intimacy. And as Jesus is about to liberate the man, something that made me scratch my head was this. The evil spirits say to Jesus something very interesting. We know who you are. That's interesting, but that's another sermon. We know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. Are you going to torment us before the time? Are you going to torment us before the time? Are you going to um, deal with us before the significant moment in history? It's a special Greek word called kairos. Are you going to bring justice and judgment upon us right now? Now's not the time, Jesus, for you to judge us completely. And so there's a, it's as if there's a dilemma. God has all power, so let's not deny that. So no, don't mishear me. But there's something interesting going on here that the evil spirits can identify who Jesus is, and yet... They have the audacity, in a way, to say, now is not the time for us to know your complete justice, your complete judgment. A day is coming where you will throw us into hell, where you will judge all darkness, where uh, evil will be uh, abhorrent in the world, where tears will be no more, where the justice of God will be seen in complete perfection. But not now, Jesus. And so what does Jesus do? He judges them, but not completely. He throws them, casts them into a herd of pigs and down into the sea. Here's a situation, a man whose life has been bound, and Jesus rectifies it. He brings restitution. He brings wholeness in part, but there will be a future glorious uh, wholeness in heaven. Today's not the day, says the evil spirit, but Jesus says, yes, but there will be a day. I will bring restitution in part, but this man will know it in full when I return in glory and power. Everything will be put right in that day, but I will bring justice in part now. It's part of the glory of God. It's now and not yet. Today is not the ultimate judgment day, but I will bring wholeness and healing to this man's life. 
Now, I'm glad about that. I'm glad that Jesus Christ has not returned in 1976 when I was just a child and one year old. I'm glad that Jesus Christ does not return yesterday because today is another opportunity for the gospel to be heard. But he will return. That's the point. And the evil spirits see something. Today is not the ultimate judgment day, but it will come. That's the point. There will be a day of justice. And so when it comes to suffering, and when it comes to us saying, why do you delay in bringing justice when all I see is injustice? What do we say? The only reason God delays that I can see from the Bible is because of love. It's because God loves his people and he loves the world. And today is another opportunity for the gospel to be explained and heard and for the loving arms of Jesus to be known as you respond to the gospel. Think about this, not personally, but a little bit larger. Friends, if you live in a society like we do, that denies the reality of an ultimate judgment day, everything becomes subjective. There's no right and wrong. There's no right or wrong because there's no ultimate judgment. There's no ultimate judge. There's no objective truth. Everything becomes what's right for me. And judgment has to be meted out in this time and this time alone. But as the demons noticed and as the Bible reveals, we will struggle with the injustice that we see in the world now. But friends, there will be a judgment day. There will be justice. Why? Verse 15 tells us so. Because God, God is an all-powerful judge. And the day is coming that will make sense of suffering. We won't see it now. But a day is coming when it will be revealed. And friends, let Jesus, let God be the judge, not you. Because we don't see everything, he does. Be confident, be prayerful, be urging of our friends who are not yet Christians to say today is not the day of justice, but that day is coming. Turn to Jesus while you still can. And we say it wisely and kindly and compassionately, but we must say it and we mustn't mumble. That's the first thing that uh, the writer wants us to hear. God is an all-powerful judge. But here's the the final thing, the second thing. God is the loving and wise weaver of history. Don't you love short titles? God is the loving and wise weaver of history. Two things that he's struggling with. I see injustice in the world. I see no progress. We've looked at injustice, but now we see. What about no progress? Verse 11 of chapter 3. God, he, has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Verse 18, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. One thing I love to do sometime in my life is to go in a hot air balloon. I don't know when I'll do it. I don't know if I'll be able to do it. If you've done it, don't tell me. I'll be jealous of you. But I'd love to go in a hot air balloon, maybe over a, maybe over a game reserve in Africa somewhere, perhaps not over the Grand Canyon. Epsom would be fine. I'd love to just go over the downs and just go high up in the air, because I love up at the downs. You can see how London is pieced together. I'd love to go in a hot air balloon before I'm called home. Friends, the Bible gives us enough of history to understand where we are at this very point. But when it comes to suffering, our difficulty is partly because we're not in a hot air balloon. 
We can't see it all. We can't see how it all fits together, but God can. He has his wide-angled lens of eternity, and so he understands how things fit together. And history, rather than it being cyclical with no progress, like the writer is wrestling with, history has an appointed beginning and an appointed end. And it only makes sense, not from a hot air balloon, but from God's vantage point. And it wouldn't make sense from any other way. So when it comes to suffering, one of the issues that we have is, I can't see any point to my loved one having a terminal illness. But that does not mean, therefore, that there is no point. I can't see any point why a friend who I saw this Thursday morning has not been yet called home, although she's been bedridden, although she's only got days to live, although she's got cancer of the uh, stomach lining and she's going to die, she'll be called home soon. Why has God not called her home yet? I can't see any point to that. But I'm not, therefore, going to say there can't be a point because God can see all of time and history. He's not just the judge. He's also the wise and loving father. Look at verse 18. There's the word there, test. God tests us that we might see. This word uh, test means to uh, take some grain that you've just harvested to throw it up in the air. All the chaff will be blown away and what is solid and what is lasting comes back in your hand that you can make bread or whatever you want to make out of it from. The Bible says God tests us never so that we might fail. He tests us so that we might grow. It's refinement, it's strengthening, it's resistance training in the gym, so I'm told. Because God wants us to grow in dependency and trust and love. That's what's being said here. This is the only place, well, it's the only place in this sermon that we need to leave Ecclesiastes to see, to see the hot air balloon of history, to see how it fits together, to see what's the point. And the point is Jesus. The only place where we have to leave Ecclesiastes today is to see that the ultimate, the final, the only authority, the only answer to the problem of suffering is in a person called Jesus Christ. Fully man, fully God. He doesn't just help us to understand suffering intellectually, philosophically, as the teacher would have us understand. It becomes personal when we come to Jesus and when we see him and when we understand him and then as we worship him. Have you ever thought that uh, the issue of suffering, therefore, is not just an intellectual one, it's personal? It's very close to our hearts. Because at its centre is Jesus in the story of history in the Bible. And in Jesus' life, suffering was not peripheral, it was not on the edge, it was very central to his calling. It was central to his mission. Other religions would say, you're talking blasphemy. How can God, if Jesus is God, how on earth would he suffer? Why would he suffer? That's blasphemy. But friends, to Christianity, suffering is central. Suffering is central. I read a story this week of, of a man who needed to go for a colon x-ray. He was very uncomfortable. And what made it more difficult and more embarrassing for him as he received treatment over a few months was the, the x-ray technician, who was very unkind, who laughed a bit, who was very curt, and made it difficult for him. 
After the initial x-ray, he went back a few months later and saw the same person who was now speaking kindly. He was now speaking um, compassionately. He was now dealing with him tenderly. And so he said to him, what's changed? You were really quite a nasty piece of work a few months back. He said, well, I've got sick, you see, and I've now been on the table. When it comes to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4, we don't deal with a God who just understands suffering from afar. He's not just a righteous judge. He's a loving and a wise God. And so when we struggle with suffering personally, we come to a God in Hebrews chapter 4 that says, as you approach the throne of grace, you're not coming to a God who is unfamiliar with suffering. He's suffered as we have. And he suffered for us. He's not just talking about it like an x-ray technician. If you allow me to use the language, Jesus has been on the table. And so he understands what we face. There's no other religion like this that understands suffering in this way. There's no other God like ours who's died, not just experiencing suffering periphery, but in his very being. Our suffering was laid on him. No other religion even comes close to an understanding where God takes suffering on himself. Not even close. And so when you stand before your maker, when God calls you home, when God calls you to give an account for your life, what will you say? Will you say something like, why did you let that happen to me? Or will you say, I don't understand why you let that happen to your son. And it amazes me. And it marvels me. Thank you. What will you say? This is not a superficial intellectual question. This is a real question. Why did Jesus let his son suffer? Because, friends, as you know, if you're a Christian, he wanted to settle your account. He wanted to take the justice that you deserve for the sins in your life, for the rebellion in my heart, all upon himself. So that one day there would be justice, not in part, but in full. And it wasn't in the future, it was in the past. When at the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on the Son of God. So that we will not know the justice of God, we can experience the grace of God because of what Jesus did. One day, on the cross, Jesus' body and his sacrifice was sufficient so God could take the punishment for evil on his Son rather than on us. Because suffering is real. There is a problem of progress and there's a problem of injustice. And it comes down to suffering. And suffering is like a river. A huge surging river that you cannot cross yourself. The tide is too strong. The waves are there as well. It's too deep. It's too wide. You can never do it yourself. It's a wide, surging, powerful river. But to stick with the metaphor, friends, Jesus is the only one who knows the crossing point and it's his cross it's the only place where you can walk across and be kept safe and not be swept away and only if you're holding his hand will you be safe eternally it's the suffering of king jesus on my behalf and your behalf everybody in this room will be swept away by the justice of god unless we are safe and secure in the arms of jesus there will always be and must always be tears and perplexity, no glib answers when it comes to suffering. There will always be perplexity. There was even perplexity in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Father, is there any other way, says Jesus, who had all knowledge, but is there any other way? How can I get out of this? But notice Jesus did not ignore suffering. He did not endure it like a stoic. He used it and he laid down his life to redeem for himself a people that would be called not just his enemies, but his eternal friends, Christians, you and me. Friends, there's a river out there. Koaleth, the philosopher, has led us to that river. And yet Jesus holds out his hand even this morning and says, take my hand. Humble yourself, says another part of the Bible, under his mighty hand, and he will exalt you in that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the questioning nature of the teacher of this book. It's an uncomfortable book that points us on every page to Jesus. Help us, please, to uh, marvel afresh at the glory of the gospel and the treasure of the cross and the sacrifice of King Jesus who laid down his life in obedience to his Father not to redeem himself but to redeem for himself a people. Help us to glory in that truth we pray and share it with others. Amen.